This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Did the prophets foretell a priestly messiah? Who was the mysterious figure of Melchizedek? In his new book, Jesus, the Incarnation of the Word, David Mitchell uses exegetical acumen and his expertise in ancient sources to offer intriguing answers to these and other questions. Join us as we speak with David about his latest book on the Messiah. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. And I'm your host, Michael Morales. David C. Mitchell, biblical scholar and musicologist, is director of music in Holy Trinity Pro-Cathedral, Brussels. His other books include The Message of the Psalter and Messiah Ben Joseph. David, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, in a previous show, we spoke about your earlier work, Messiah Ben Joseph, published in 2016. What's the relationship of that work to this new book, Jesus, the Incarnation of the Word? Well, The two books are related. Although the titles don't seem very similar, the books are related. I call them sibling volumes. Um, They are related insofar as both books look at the doctrine of the Messiah from an Old Testament and Jewish perspective, but there are important differences too. Messiah ben Yosef examines the ancient origins of the suffering and sacrificial Messiah promised to Joseph, but Jesus, the incarnation of the Word, looks at the priestly Messiah promised to the Levites. But there are other differences too. Messiah ben Yosef is a more academic work. It's also a more Jewish work. It depends heavily on rabbinic texts, with only one chapter on New Testament and patristic literature. But Jesus the Incarnation is both more popular and more Christian. There's much more discussion of the New Testament and patristic literature. But there is also a lot of rabbinics too. And there is a lot of discussion of the genealogy of Jesus. It's something that's fascinated me for years, and I decided to really get to grips with it. And that's something that does not appear at all in Messiah ben Yosef. Curiously, you start your book on the Incarnation with Melchizedek, a figure mentioned all the way back in the first book of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis. Tell us about Melchizedek and why you chose to start with him. Well, I like to start at the beginning. And when it comes to the priest messiah, Melchizedek is the beginning. And we first meet Melchizedek, of course, in Genesis 14. There he is, the priest king of Shalem, that is Jerusalem, in the time of Abraham. And he blesses Abraham after Abraham returns victorious from his battle with the kings of the east. And I look at the various historical views of the figure, Jewish views and Christian views, and some folk, Jews and Christians, think he was a mortal, and others, also Jews and also Christians, think he was an immortal, an angel, or perhaps something greater. 
And having looked at the evidence, I weigh it up. And the first thing that is clear is that the oldest interpretive traditions, like the Dead Sea Melchizedek text, which dates from before 100 BC, they see Melchizedek as definitely not a mortal. He is a high and exalted figure who seems to be both the Messiah and the God of Israel. And other early Christ, other, some early Christians held such a view as well. The most prominent among the fathers would be Ambrose of Milan, who said, God is Melchizedek. But there were whole groups of early Christians called the Melchizedekians, who said Melchizedek was the son of God. Yet later rabbinic tradition tries to put down Melchizedek and says he is Shem, the son of Noah, and that he was a priest, but he lost his priesthood to Abraham. And this view was followed by some Christians too. The most prominent among them was Jerome. Now Jerome, as you know, had bought heavily into rabbinic interpretation, and Jerome is dead opposed to the Melchizedekians. He brands them as heretics. Now, the next thing is that all through Genesis we meet this figure called the Angel of the Lord, or the Word of the Lord, who speaks with Avram and others face to face. And as most folk listening will probably know, the Angel of the Lord is no ordinary angel. He is Jehovah himself. Permit me to say Jehovah. That's not quite how it was pronounced, but it's a lot closer than the usual modern version of the Tetragrammaton. And this angel of Jehovah keeps merging in and out of the character of the God of Israel. And as we compare the angel of the Lord to Melchizedek, I conclude that the two figures look so similar that they could be the same person. However, there is no solid evidence for that in Genesis. For solid evidence, we need to turn to Psalm 110. And this is where I get back to the Psalms. All right, let's go back to the Psalms. Melchizedek is also referenced in Psalm 110. Can you explain for us that connection? Well, as, as anybody who's read my work knows, I'm very much a Psalm scholar. And I have to say, I've been thinking and puzzling over Psalm 110 for the last 30 years. And some people ask me if my views have changed since I published the message of the Psalter back in 1997. And I reply, really only one thing my interpretation of Psalm 110. Now, in this book, I think I've finally got to the bottom of what Psalm 110 is saying, and I spend some 20,000 words explaining it. So it's not easy to summarize in a few words, but let me try. There are two main things here. The first is Jesus' interpretation in Matthew 22, and the second is the person of Melchizedek within Psalm 110 itself. Now, Jesus' interpretation of the psalm in Matthew 22 and his parallels is a crucial text. Our listeners will know it. Jesus asked the Pharisees, whose son is the Messiah? The Pharisees say, he's David's son. Jesus says, why then does David, speaking by the Spirit, call him Lord? And then Jesus quotes the first verse of the psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, most most modern interpreters, including many evangelical Christians, unwittingly follow the view of Abraham ibn Ezra, who sees two people in the heading of this psalm. That is the Lord, Jehovah, who makes the promise, and David, who is the psalmist and who is also my Lord, who receives the promise. So the ibn Ezra view sees two people, Jehovah the promiser and David the promisee and the psalmist, and that is the popular view nowadays. But Jesus sees it quite differently. And I was always disturbed that the common evangelical tradition had basically left Jesus behind. Everybody was all agreeing 
and forgetting what Jesus said. But Jesus sees it quite differently. He sees three people in the heading of the psalm, namely David the psalmist, Jehovah who makes the promise, and my Lord who receives the promise, who for Jesus is the Messiah. So three people, Jehovah the promiser, David the psalmist, and Messiah my Lord, the promising. And I suggest that Jesus' interpretation is the only possible correct one. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First, it is the most ancient interpretation. This is exactly the same interpretation we find implied in Daniel 7 and in 11Q Melchizedek and in the similitudes of Enoch, where there is one sitting at the right hand of God who is a heavenly figure who is to come to earth as the Messiah. And second, this interpretation is the only one that really makes sense. For the figure in Psalm 110 is made an eternal priest and the ruler of all the nations, and David was neither eternal, nor a priest, nor the ruler of all the nations. So then, having looked at Jesus' interpretation, we turn our attention to the psalm, and I suggest that there is something badly wrong with the usual translation of verse 4. It says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And from this, we should conclude that someone is made a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And when we see this, we have to ask, Okay, then is Melchizedek a priest forever? If we reply, no, Melchizedek was mortal, then it makes no sense at all. How can someone become an eternal priest in the order of a mortal? That's like saying, I make you Archbishop of Canterbury forever and ever, just like Thomas a Becket. That really makes no sense at all. But if, on the other hand, we say, okay then, Melchizedek's an immortal, he's a priest forever, then we must conclude that someone else is also being made an eternal priest, just like Melchizedek, who is also an eternal priest. In that case, we have two eternal high priests, both offering rival access to the one God. And that makes no sense either. So there is a problem. And in the end, there is only one solution, which is that our common English Bible translation of Psalm 110 verse 4 is the mother of all mistranslations. For it's a very twisted reading of the Hebrew. The obvious and clear reading of the Hebrew should say, You are a priest forever, according to my promise, O Melchizedek. And that not only makes sense in the, within the psalm, it is the best translation of the Hebrew. And then everything makes sense. The figure at the beginning of the psalm, the person David calls my Lord, the person that Jesus says is the Messiah, is Melchizedek. In other words, Melchizedek is the Son of God, is the Messiah, who is Jesus. So there is a fairly short summary of my 20,000 word discussion of the psalm in the book. There is no other possible way to reasonably understand the psalm. There are any other way. There are basic logical issues in trying to understand it. David, would you also tell us about how the New Testament develops Psalm 110 and the figure of Melchizedek in relation to the person and work of Jesus? Uh, I would say we find Melchizedek in two passages in particular in the New Testament, and that is in John chapter 8 and in the epistle to the Hebrews. In John chapter 8, Jesus is debating with the Judeans. Probably Pharisees is what John means by Judeans. And they say they are children of Abraham, and Jesus says they are seeking to kill him, a man who has spoken to them the truth from God. And then he says, Abraham did not do such a thing. Now the implication is that Abraham 
knew such a man, one who spoke to him the truth from God. And Jesus can only be referring to Melchizedek, for Abraham had no other teacher or priest. And the implication is that Jesus knew all about this. So the, the conversation goes on, and ten verses later the Judeans ask Jesus if he thinks he is greater than Abraham. And Jesus replies, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw and was glad. Now we shouldn't resort to paraphrase here as if to say that Jesus meant that Abraham foresaw the time of the Messiah but didn't actually see him. Jesus' words seem quite clear. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He seems to be claiming that Abraham in his lifetime saw him. And the Judeans grasp exactly that meaning. They reply, but you are not 50 and you have seen Abraham. So they thought that Jesus was saying that he'd seen Abraham. Jesus then was claiming to have seen Abraham in the flesh. And the question is, when did Jesus see Abraham in the flesh? Well, the words, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, suggests Abraham met Jesus during a period of time of Jesus' appearance on earth. So I don't think we can limit the meaning of these words to simply one appearance to Abraham at Mamre in Genesis 18. It seems to point to a time period when Jesus and Abraham overlapped. That is, when Melchizedek was the king of, priest king of Shalem, and he met Abraham in Genesis 14, but probably also in Genesis 18, and probably also in Genesis 22, and perhaps at other times as well. And then just look at Jesus' words. He says, Abraham, your father, rejoiced to see my day. Now, the usual Jewish expression is Abraham, our father. When Jesus says, Abraham, your father, he's saying that he's not a descendant of Abraham. And this leads to the following verse with the famous claim, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus here is claiming to be, well, it's too trite to say he's claiming to be God, because I think it's more exact than that. He's claiming to be the angel of the Lord, who is Melchizedek. Um, I propose to that exactly the same view is found in the description of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning or end of days. These words do not describe a mortal. Although some people would like to take it that way, they do not describe a mortal. They describe an uncreated deity. And then... The writer of Hebrews says that Melchizedek, like the Son of God, became a priest forever on the basis of an indestructible life. So Melchizedek has an indestructible life, and the Son of God has an indestructible life. So it is perfectly clear that either we are back to the conundrum of two eternal priests offering eternal access to the one God, or else Melchizedek and the Son of God are one and the same. And that surely is the obvious answer. The two priests are one. Jesus is Melchizedek, is the Son of God. Well, Melchizedek is just one strand in your book on Jesus. Before we let you go, can you give us a hint of some of the other lines you pursued? Well, yeah. I, I'm Like I said, I'm interested in Jesus before Bethlehem, but I'm also interested in Jesus on how he comes to Bethlehem. Um, and so I spend... Four chapters on the genealogies of Jesus and Matthew and Luke and the background to them. 
and of Mary's genealogy, which is not recorded in the New Testament, but we have information on it in the Church Fathers. I draw a lot of supportive evidence from an old Jewish genealogy, ancient Jewish genealogy, preserved by the Loeb family, called the Loeb tree. That's L-O-E-B. And I argue that there is no contradiction, taking, bringing the Loeb genealogy and gives us extra insights, and confirms, makes a lot of sense of what reason there was a French writer called Jacques Masson who, who wrote a huge treatise on um, the, the two genealogies, and he concluded that the only way to harmonize them was that there was a British female from the line of Nathan and the line of Solomon who joined the two lines together in the person of Zerubbabel. And the Loeb genealogy not only confirms this, it gives us the name of this woman, who was Tamar, the granddaughter of Josiah. She was the daughter of Josiah's firstborn son, who died before he came to the throne. So in the end, we find there is no contradiction between Matthew and Luke. Both are genuine genealogies preserved by the family of Jesus. Matthew traces the king list, the line of royal succession from Solomon. But since Solomon's descendants, that is, Jehoiakim and his son Jeconiah, were cursed by Jeremiah, the Messiah could not be a genetic descendant of that royal line. And so Luke traces the line of genetic descent from Nathan through the marriage of Neri and Josiah's granddaughter Tamar. And after Neri's death, Neri's children were adopted by uh, Jeconiah as their stepfather um, because Jeconiah was childless in accordance with Jeremiah's curse. His only son died. And so the genetic line of Nathan became the line of royal succession. And from this line sprang Joseph of Nazareth. And as regards Joseph's two fathers at the end of the, the genealogy, Jacob and Haley, I follow the view of Africanus and other church fathers like John of Damascus, who explained Africanus's account and expanded on it a bit. Mary was also related, was related to Joseph on her father's side. Many, many marriages in ancient Israel were consanguineal, and thus Mary too was of the royal line of David on her father's side. However, her matrilineal descent is quite different. Her mother's family were Zedekites, apparently of Hasmonean descent, and she came from the highest levels of the Zedekite clan. The Talmud calls her the child of rulers and of, and, and of high priests. And um, therefore, Mary was not a peasant girl, as we so frequently hear. She was a Hasmonean princess. And therefore, the bloodline of Jesus through Mary was patrilineally from David and matrilineally from Aaron and Zadok. And since in Judaism, the mother's mother's line takes precedence over the mother's father's line, I propose that we should perhaps speak of Jesus the Zedekite rather than Jesus the Judahite or Jesus the Jew. Remember, a Jew is a descendant of the tribe of David, which is not exactly the same as an Israelite. A Zedekite and a Judahite are both Israelites, but a Judahite is not a Zedekite, nor vice versa. And as I say, an Aramaic-speaking Galilean, who does not observe Judean feasts, whose father is God, and whose mother is an Aaronite princess, is certainly an Israelite, but I would not be too quick to call him Jewish. So I've called him, in the end, Jesus the Quarter Jew. David, thank you for joining us on the show. All the best. Thank you very much. 
Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.